so recently um, the Pentagon released uh, three videos of UFOs. And um, one was called Tic Tac, one was called Goes Fast, and one was called Gimbal. And uh, the videos are very interesting. It's a strange object, and it seems to be doing strange things, and so there's a lot of speculation on it. The nice thing is that it was videos caught by military aircraft. So you don't just get a, an IR image of the thing. You also get information on the aircraft, like altitude, airspeed, um, rate of turn, uh, distance to target, you know, those kind of things, uh, how the, uh, the IR is looking off the nose of the aircraft, those kind of bits of information. And so I was really fascinated by these, uh, these, these images, and I came across a man named Mick West. And what Mick did is he took those videos and analyzed them very carefully. And so one of them, he, you could see the altitude, the airspeed, and the, and the angle that the aircraft was flying at, and he plotted that out on a course, and it was making this, this turn. And then you get the deflection off the nose that it's pointing at this object called Ghost Fast. It looks like it's going really quick across the ocean. And he measured it out and he plotted it out with the angles. And you can see it's all done mathematically, very carefully done. And depending on the range to the target, the object is either moving at 200 or miles per hour, 30 miles an hour. It depends on how far away it is. And it turns out those kind of speeds at that kind of an altitude uh, with the look down angle and everything is pretty much guaranteed it's a weather balloon that they were tracking. And so what I, what I appreciate about Mick West is when he looks at these UFO videos, his first initial reaction isn't, oh my gosh, they're UFOs, or oh my gosh, they're not. He says, well, let's see what they are. So he's, he's very uh, careful in analyzing them and you know, admits that there's, there's different ways of doing it. So because of these videos being released, there's a lot of interest now in UFOs lately. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. So can you go ahead and throw that picture up real quick? So here is a picture from CNN, and they're talking with this, this man. I'm not sure who he is, but I'm sure he knows a lot about UFOs. And this is kind of the stock picture that they use whenever they talk about UFOs. And it's quite a mysterious picture, isn't it? What is that thing? What, what would make a shape like that in the sky? Well, Mick West has an answer for us. Here's what Mick said. This was something that he posted, and I follow him on Twitter, and this is his response. He says, this sphere UFO from Fox News keeps showing up in their stock UFO uh, footage rotation. It's, a, it's normal iPhone bokeh. In other words, how the iPhone camera takes the picture when it's out of focus. He says, of course, there might be a shiny trans-gravity craft behind it, but the, the photo is a point of light out of focus. That's all. Stop using it. So it looks mysterious. What's most mysterious about it is it's out of focus, and it's just a point of light. So yes, he, he jokingly says it could be a transgravity warp drive signature craft, or it could be Venus. We just don't know. And so um, when we look at things like this, um, it, it's not a bad idea to be a little skeptical at first, but you have to give it a chance and kind of look at it and say, well, what that is we don't know. But what we do know is that it's a point of light that's out of focus. And so we can't go much beyond that. Now, I think that kind of approach to UFOs is helpful um, because it teaches us a little bit of careful skepticism. Not, you know, skeptic where it can't be, but just let's, let's analyze what we actually have instead of what we think we have. And so this week, you can go ahead and put up the, the sermon graphic again. This week for Advent, what we're looking at is the return of Christ, the promised return of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to eschatology, 
bad news, folks. It's a little bit out of focus in the Bible. We don't get all the fine details that we would like. And so when we approach this question of Jesus' return, let it be out of focus. But don't miss the point of light that it is. And so that's what we're going to try to do. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so as we do this, the reason we're looking at the return of Christ and this promised return is because it is what Paul called our blessed hope, is that Jesus is coming back. And that's the point of light. We know Jesus is coming back. And so it is a source of hope for us. And so what we're going to see this morning is we're going to have to guard our hope. Then we're going to see the power of hope. Where can that hope come from? And then finally, we'll look at the hope of Jesus' return. And, and what we want to do in this, this message is look at how is Jesus with us now and how will he be with us when he returns and, and what happens there. So let's look at this together. So verse uh, 6 um, says, So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, who is they and where are they? This is the disciples, and they are out at uh, Mount Olivet. Jesus has taken him to Mount Olivet, and he is about to ascend into heaven. And so the disciples are looking at him and saying, is this it? Is this the time now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that question is loaded with a lot of presuppositions. These guys have grown up with understanding them that the Messiah would come and he would be like King David or King Solomon. And he would come and he would reign and rule. Now, that doesn't mean that they were expecting nothing but an earthly messiah, that they you know, just expected a military commander to come in. They knew enough of Israel's history to say God could send all kinds of great miracles. We have watched Jesus do great miracles. So maybe they're thinking like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven. Maybe that's what Jesus is going to do so that he can march into Jerusalem and take his throne. Or maybe he's, they're thinking of Elijah, Elisha when he's... Uh, the, the city is surrounded, and, and uh, the angel of the Lord wipes out 185,000 troops. Just in, overnight, it happens. Maybe he's thinking that God is going to do some sort of miracle like this. This is what they have in mind, because they expect Jesus to establish his earthly rule now. Now, we can kind of click our tongues and roll our eyes, or click your eyes and roll your tongues, but I'm, think, I'm pretty sure it's the first one. And think, how could these guys get it wrong? Well, hang on, gang. Hang on for a second. What you miss is what we didn't read is in verse 3, it says, he presented himself alive to them after, uh, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So these guys have directly from Jesus' mouth, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like, and they still missed it. What hope have we got? We're going to come at it with some presuppositions as well. So what the warning there is, is it's out of focus. Jesus doesn't give us all the details about his return. So when we see them say, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And now you're going to ascend to your throne. And, and I get to sit on your right hand and, and John gets to sit on your left hand and we're going to rule the nations, right? Well, that's not out of line. That's not just totally missing the mark. They, they had reasons for believing that. But Jesus' answer is startling and kind of revealing. Jesus' answer to them is, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that my father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. That's Jesus saying eschatology is going to be out of focus. 
the times. It's not for you to know how many days until this happened, the seasons. It's not going to up to you to know which kingdom is going to rule for how long and what's going to happen next and all of those things. He says that's, that's not what it's about, you guys. And so what we want to learn here is we want to guard our hope because we, the Christian church has got a tragic long history of fixing dates. We just do it regularly. I remember when Lisa and I first moved back here to the United States, we discovered this thing called Christian radio. Never had it in the England. This was something brand new. And it, it must have been 1998 because we were still living in, the, in the, uh, um, the apartment complex. And I was driving home from work because I was on base, and I had the radio on, and they were talking about this prediction that the return of Christ was going to be that day. They weren't saying it was true or not, just talking about it. And I remember kind of going, ha, no, nah, that's not right, and then kind of looking out the window. <laughs> is it? You know, maybe it is. So this has been going on for a long time. We've been, we've been date setting quite often. One of the greatest warning signs, one of the greatest warning stories, I think, was uh, the, what's called the Millerites. Um, William Miller was a, a fiery prophet preaching kind of guy in the 1800s, and he had predicted that Jesus would return in 1844, or in 1845, and he got many people to follow him. They would, they would sell their worldly possessions because they thought, kingdom's coming, I don't need this stuff. They bought white robes and stood on hills. There's even stories of people wearing paper wings and climbing up trees. They wanted to be just a few feet above everybody else as they ascended when Jesus returned. I don't know how to break this to you folks. Jesus did not return in 1844. In case you missed, if you were afraid you missed it, he didn't, he didn't return. And so what came after that was something called the great disappointment. And many people were ruined by this. Their, their faith was shattered. Um, a group of folks kind of hung on to it and said, well, they still believe the prophecy. And somebody claimed to have received a vision that Jesus didn't return. What they missed was what he did, which is he went into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And so he moved from wherever he was into the Holy of Holies and they try to spin that, that turned into what we now call the Seventh-day Adventists. That's kind of where they came from, was the Millerites. The problem is, when you fix your hope on a date, which, by the way, Jesus told you just now, it's not for you to know. So when you fix your hope on a date, I think there's two dangers that you face when you do this. First of all, you, you can hope in the date. It's kind of like if you go to the racetrack and you bet on a horse, and the horse comes in. You're happy. Are you happy for the horse? Are, are you so glad that poor horsey made it across the line? You don't care. You're happy because I picked the right one. I won. You're happy about the bet, not about the horse. So if we pick a date and we say, that's what I'm looking forward to, we're putting our hope in the date. And Jesus' return simply fulfills that. That's, that's his whole function is to prove me right. That's one danger. The other danger is when he doesn't show up because you were wrong. Now, all of a sudden, your, your faith could be crushed because you put your hope in the date, not in his return. So that those are the dual dangers that we have to face. We're interested here in guarding our hope. So when Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, leave that thing out of focus. It's a blurry dot. You don't know what it is. You know there's a dot there, but you don't try to fill in the details. And so we have to hold this kind of stuff loosely and keep your hope on the one thing that gives us hope, our blessed hope. Jesus is returning. Now, if we keep guessing, eventually we'll get it right, right? 
eventually somebody's going to get it right because Jesus will come back. But that doesn't mean that they got it right because they knew it. They just got lucky. <laughs> they just happened to pick the right date. So don't let your hope be taken away. Don't look at 2,000 years of waiting and go, well, he's not returning. I mean, that, that's what Peter says, right? That people were saying, well, where's the hope of his return? You know, he's been 2,000 years. Nothing has changed from the beginning. And Peter's response is, hey, for the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Don't, don't count his slowness as being slack. He is coming back. And so this is one of the things that we hold to is something called the imminent return of Jesus. He can come back at any time. He can. And it's not for us to know when. It just is not in what he's given us. So trust that he is coming. Expect him at any minute. And if somebody tells you a date and time, don't believe them, or at least be very skeptical. Um, more recently, there was a man named Harold Camping who picked a date, and it didn't come. And he picked a second date because he made a mathematical calculation error, and it didn't come. And, and his ministry goes on. He's since passed away, so now he knows when the Lord's returning because he's in heaven. <laughs> and hopefully, may, well, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he's still in heaven going, okay, well, I blew it. So, so be really careful with those things. What we want to preserve here when we talk about the return of Christ is we want to preserve the hope that we have in that. It's tremendously good news. So that's, that's preserving or guarding your hope. Now, where can we find a power to hope in all of this? How, how can we can maintain our, our faith in these kind of things? Well, what Jesus says next, he's, he's, he didn't stop at, it's not for you to know. He then continues and he says, but... And this is one of those blessed buts in, in, in uh, Scripture. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be, I'm sorry, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So in that interim time while we're waiting, while we're waiting for the return of Christ, what did he promise us in the great, uh, the great Commission? He says, all power has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, whole, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded, and, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And then he disappears. So the question is, how is he still with us? If he has now ascended into heaven and he's gone, he's not with us, but he's with us. How is he with us? Well, he tells us right here in Luke's version, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus is with us because the Holy Spirit is with us. And why would I say that? Well, there's some scriptures that give the Holy Spirit different names. Not only is he the third person of the Trinity, but in Philippians 1.9, he's called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In Acts 16.7, he's called the Spirit of Jesus. In Galatians 4.6, talking about Jesus, he says, that God has given us the spirit of his son. So the Holy Spirit is with us as the spirit of Christ. And so that's how he is with us. And then in Romans um, 8, verses 9 and 10, listen to how he describes it. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. So first he calls him the spirit of God. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ so he's the spirit of God, he's the spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So do you hear what he's saying? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, 
Christ is in you because the Spirit is in you. So how on earth are we supposed to hang on to our hope when we've been waiting 2,000 years so far? Well, because you have been given power because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. That's how you hang on to hope. That's how you experience it. How do you experience that hope? How do we live in that hope? How do we walk in that hope? Well, we do it by being in the Spirit. So, for example, Ephesians 4, Paul has some things to say. He says, let no one... Uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. What is dead at the center of that? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So how do you walk in the Spirit? Well, stop stealing. Work. Let no corrupt talk come from your mouth. Don't gossip. Don't, don't slander people. Don't talk about corrupt things. Don't laugh about silly things that, that don't honor God. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. If you do these kinds of things, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. You are grieving Christ in you. So how do we walk in that power? We do what he's called us to do. And as we're doing that, what he tells us is we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that's what we're called to do, is we walk in this way. We're not grieving the Spirit. We're working in the power of the Spirit, and along the way, we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You have the power to hope. So when that hope waxes and wanes, when it's strong one day and, and, and weak the next, is that a sign that the Spirit has departed from you or something? Well, I, I don't think so. I think when we talk about you know hope waning, and it's hard to read the scriptures, and I I'm spiritually dry, and, and what's going on there, it doesn't mean that the sealing of the Holy Spirit has been lifted from you. And the first answer for them, what's going on is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. But one thing I, I think that I have experienced personally is there are times when the Holy Spirit is working in you very strongly and you read the Bible and, and just sentence after sentence jumps off the page and it has rich meaning and it's so beautiful and you stop and you pray and you can hear the echo in heaven of your prayer and you know God is hearing me. And then there are times when you read the Bible and it's flat as a board and nothing jumps off the page and you pray and you could swear it's going nowhere. And why would God do that to you? I, I can't answer for sure, but one of the things that I've experienced and one of the things I think he does that for is he withdraws not to make you bitter or scared or alone, but to draw you further. He's like, my child, I'm, I'm here with you. Now take the next step. So like when, not everybody has babies, but when you have a baby and you're teaching that child to walk, you're walking behind them and you're holding them up and they're toddling and they're going, and at a certain point you let go and they fall on their butt and sometimes they cry. Or when you're teaching that child to ride a bike, you're walking behind them and you're holding onto the seat and you're keeping them upright. And if you're a good parent, at some point you're going to let go and they're going to be surprised that they're still upright. So you do that not to, not to abandon them, not because you don't care, but because you want them to take that next step. You're asking them to, to trust and to be stronger and to do what they need to do. So when the Holy Spirit is not so present with us, when it doesn't feel quite so strong, 
When the scriptures aren't so alive, it might be God saying, keep going, keep going. You can do this. Come a little closer. And then you'll have that sweet time of fellowship again. But in the midst of that, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Pursue him. Jesus promised, my father delights to give the Holy Spirit to anybody who asks. So ask for more. He, that's what he might be doing in you is drawing that faith out, taking you, getting you to take those next steps. So there's, therein lies the power for our hope. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's the work of the Spirit. And so Jesus is with us until the end of the age in the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we have hope in his return, this last section, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is that, that hope of his return is the disciples are looking and, and remember what they just said to him. It, is now the time when you restore the kingdom? Expecting him to march into Jerusalem and, and, and take over and vanquish the enemies and establish the kingdom. And his answer is he goes up into the sky. And I can just imagine standing there with him going, but that's not what we thought. On top of that, it's pretty amazing. Jesus just lifted up and went up into the sky. I mean, that's, that's pretty startling on its own. But it wasn't the miracle that they were expecting. And so I can just feel them standing there with their jaws open going, I don't know what just happened. And so God doesn't leave them. He doesn't go, now go figure it out. Go open your Bibles and figure it out. Because he's kind and generous, he sends two angels. And, and isn't it interesting that, that Luke describes them as men in white robes? Think of some of the other appearances of angels in Ezekiel's vision. These angels have six wings and eyes all over, and they fly, and they, they shout with voices that sound like roaring waters. In, in, um, in uh, Joshua, Joshua goes and he looks at the city of Jericho, and a, a fierce warrior approaches him. And it turns out that is the commander of the host of uh, the Lord's host. And so Joshua falls down and worships. He goes, this is terrifying. Often when in angels appear, they're terrifying. They, the first thing they have to say is, don't be afraid. But in this case, because they're already bewildered, because they're already confused, because they're already kind of put off, it's two men in white robes. It's just God's kindness to them. He wants them to endure. He wants them to maintain their hope for the coming of Christ. And so they look to him. They said, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? Why are you looking up? What did he just tell you, you guys? You will be my witnesses. So you got work to do. When the power, when this Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. So stop gaping at the sky. And then here's the promise. This Jesus who was taken up, he will return in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He, he will come again. So why did Jesus float up? Is heaven up above us? Yuri Gagarin, when he, he took a spacewalk, I think it was Gagarin, said he, he looked out and there was no God up there. And he's kind of mocking this idea that heaven is above us. Heaven isn't necessarily above us. So why would Jesus levitate? Well, that's a great place to disappear. First of all, it's an amazing thing that he would float up and then being swallowed in the clouds, and then he's gone. And not only that, but I think the real answer is because when he returns, what it's described as is it's like lightning flashing from one side of the sky to the other. 
It, it is this amazing event that nobody will miss, and he will return in the clouds. So that's why he went in the clouds. I had a cult knock on my door, and um, I, I usually don't talk with them because it's usually fruitless, but I'd heard about these folks, so I wanted to speak with them. And they said that Jesus had returned, and I was like, no, he hasn't. Yep, he's returned. He's a middle-aged Korean woman um, who's, uh, who's our prophet. Like, nope, can't be. And they were like, well, how can you know? I was like, because I didn't know anything about his return. And so that sounded very prideful to them. They're like, what? I was like, because what the Bible says is when he returns, nobody's going to miss it. There is no hidden return of Jesus. When he shows up, it's like lightning flashing across the sky. Since no lightning flashed across the sky, I know whoever that is, that ain't Jesus. So this is the hope of our, 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 our hope, our blessed hope in Jesus' return, is my friends, you're not going to miss it. There's no secret to this. He doesn't appear in some back room with the Jehovah's Witness. He's going to be glorious when he comes. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians, it says he will appear with a shout, with a blast of the trumpet, with an angel screaming, he will come in the heavens. And so when he returns, it won't be missed, and it won't be something that may get covered on CNN, but maybe not. It, you won't miss it. It's, it's going to be the event, literally, of all history. And so this is the, our hope in his return. So when will it happen? Will it happen before, he return, or before his kingdom, or after his kingdom, or is it kingdom now, or what, what, how is it all going to work? So there's different eschatological positions. On, on the relationship of Jesus' return and his kingdom. And so I want to go back to what he told his disciples. It's not for you to know the times and seasons. That does not sound like what we would call an amillennial answer. They, they, they should have, if it was an amillennial answer, Jesus should have said, well, you guys, yes, I'm going to establish my kingdom now, but it's going to be in the preaching of the word. And so now go out and do those things. So don't worry about it. He didn't answer that way or what we would call a post-millennial. He returns after the, the kingdom has been established on earth. He didn't say to his disciples, well, you guys, you have to go out and establish the kingdom, and once Christians have taken over the world, then I'll come back. And he doesn't say it in a premillennial fashion either. Go, and when I come back, that's when I'll establish the kingdom. It, it's not going to happen now. So he doesn't answer in any of the, the typical millennial eschatological categories. It's like, I want an answer. But that doesn't mean that you should go what we call pan-millennial, which is, it's all going to pan out in the end, so I don't care. Well, yeah, you should care. There's actual stuff in the Bible that talks about this. But what I would say is hold your eschatology loosely. Study these things. Figure it out. And then hold it with an open hand, going, I could be wrong. Because the way I've described eschatology before is it's like an ill-fitting suit. You, you put it on. And it pinches in different places. And if you're comfortable with it pinching in that place, that's cool. Except I always thought postmillennialism was like a three-sleeved jacket. So I never could quite figure out how that one fit on. But, I mean, there's, there's some room here. So I was talking with somebody recently about eschatology. And I said, well, it's not not important, but it shouldn't be primary. The way I think you do your eschatology is the eschatology is the tail on the dog wagging. It's not the tail wagging the dog. So you have your theology. You understand how God has worked in people's lives, how he has been faithful to his people through all these different things. And then you wind up with the eschatology at the end being an expression of how God has been behaving with everybody. And by the way, then you'll agree with me and be historical primo. So just saying. Um, 
But if you do it the other way around, then you can wind up having things not quite fit right. So you should have an eschatological position. You should wrestle with that. You can read some decent books out there on it. You can ask some questions about how has God historically worked in his people? What has he shown us throughout the Old Testament? And then how, has, how does that fit with what he's promise, promising us now? And so you can do that. But I am so proud of the Evangelical Free Church of America for removing the prenatal statement. My eschatological position, we took it out of the statement of faith, and I couldn't be happier because I don't think it's something that we should divide over. I don't think it's something that, that is that important. And instead of saying we believe in the personal, bodily, premillennial return of Christ, they changed it to we believe in the personal, bodily, glorious return of Jesus Christ. And I think that nails it. That is leaving that picture out of focus, trying to figure out what's behind that out of focus picture and saying, whatever it is, it's glorious. And it's sure, and it's coming. And, and I, I always say, when Jesus finally returns, when he comes back, all of us are going to go, how could I get that wrong? I don't understand how I could totally miss that. That's just, you know, wacky. But if you want to argue eschatology, I can do that too. <laughs> I have my position. I think I'm right. I think it makes the most sense. But I got to admit, I could be wrong. However it fits together. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know Jesus is going to return. He is coming back at a date and a time we won't know until he shows up. And it will be amazing. It will be a surprise. And it might, I, I have a feeling it will be in one of the darkest times when we think it just can't get any worse. And then the king will return. And he'll come in in glory. And that will be our great relief because now he's going to set it right. Now he's going he's to put it the way it should be. In the meantime, he's with us. He promised he would be with us to the end of the age. He's with us now. In the indwelling, the sealing, the guarantee that you have in the Holy Spirit, he has sealed you. And so how can you have hope? Because the Holy Spirit is with you. And so walk with him. So we need to guard our hope, and we need to fix our hope on the right things. And so I... I may tell Mick that I used him as a ser sermon illustration because I just love that idea, that picture out of focus and letting it be out of focus. And it's okay. It, it's, it's okay to not have it all ironed out. But remember, he is coming back. And that is, as Paul said in Titus 2, that is our blessed hope. So let me read it again. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, and I would add by the Spirit, from what we just heard, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness, all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, and I would add, not grieving the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's our assurance. That's how he's with us now, and that's how he's coming back. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, um, you have picked the exact perfect and right way to ascend into heaven. You have picked the exact right way to return to the earth, and your Father has chosen the exact perfect time in history for that to occur. And Lord, we thank you for the revelation that you've given us, the understanding that you've given us about your return, the surety of it, 
the glory of it, the power of it. And Lord, I pray that we would hold the particulars of it a little loosely and admit that we could get it wrong so that our hope is not in our interpretation. Our hope doesn't rest in our figuring it out or our mathematics to figure out the day and time. But Lord, that our hope might reside in you and the fact that you are coming for us, that you haven't abandoned us, that all power has been given to you and you are with us to the end of the age. And Lord, that is our great hope, our blessed hope, the hope that we dwell in. So would you kindle that this season as we anticipate, build the expectation in us of your return as we celebrate and wait for our second advent. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before we sing our last song, um, this hymn was just kind of running through my head as, as Pastor Tim shared. Um, this hymn was written by, by Fanny Crosby, um, and she wrote 9,000 hymns over the course of her 